Hello, bonjour et bienvenue à Cannes. I'm Jason Solomon and this is the first Seen Any Good Films Lately Cannes special podcast from the world's greatest film festival where the news on this first few days is so far so safe and that cinema is back. Cinema wasn't just something we did when we could. It was actually ritualistic quality. It, it afforded us deep pleasures. That was the distinctive voice of filmmaker Mark Cousins, whose lovely documentary, The Story of Film, A New Generation, kicked things off down here as the 74th edition of the festival got underway. My distinctive voice is a little hoarse, because I'm recording this the morning after England beat Denmark to get to the final. So congratulations, I have been shouting, maybe having a little cigarette or two, because I do that at Cannes. But I'll be talking to Mark Cousins about where film is at, why we love it, and who he fell in love with at the movies. And I'm going to start by telling you, though, if I've seen any good films lately. Well, bien sûr, I've seen some good films lately. I'm at the bloody Cannes Film Festival, aren't I? There are hundreds of films here from all over the world unfolding over the next 12 days of the festival. The official selection alone counts 71 films, which is up from 59 from its last edition in 2019, when, of course, Parasite won the Palme d'Or. I enjoyed the opening ceremony here. It ended with Pedro Almodovar, Jodie Foster, Bong Joon-ho, director of Parasite, and Spike Lee, jury president, on stage, uh, opening the festival, and it had a great sprinkling of much-missed glamour, as well as Jodie Foster charming everyone with her very fluent French. Bien fait, Jodie. But what of the opening night film, Annette? Look, I wish I could have been like many of my critical colleagues out here and filed a rave review just to sort of justify the huge expense and the, uh, the space in the newspaper, but I can't. I hated every minute of it. Leos Carax's ugly musical is about Adam Driver and Marion Cotillard, and they have a marionette singing baby. Look, it, it's not even good bonkers. It's terrible songs sung terribly. They're written by the never-commercial art band Sparks, and they're full of selfish pretentiousness. We love each other so much. We love each other so much. Speak soft when you say it. Speak soft when you say it. Adam Driver plays an angry stand-up whose stuff isn't funny at all. Cotillard, an opera singer, not very well sung. And they fall in lust and they have a wooden baby. <laughs> I'm telling you, it's unwatchable, frankly. It's a musical for people who hate musicals, which isn't me. It's a sort of anti-la-la land. But if you're going to do that, you need to have some wit and some grace and some heart. And this just doesn't. Even Dancer in the Dark, which um, starred Björk and which won the Palme d'Or here in 2000, had pity and compassion for its characters, if not always for its audience. So no, Annette was not the celebratory start I needed after so long away from festival joy. But this is called Seen Any Good Films Lately, not Bad Films. So I did see Joanna Hogg's film Souvenir Part 2, and I loved it. 
uh, it kicks off the Kansen selection here, Director's Fortnite. So it's a little bit different, but you can still make a massive splash in that section. And I don't know if you saw Souvenir Part 1, but I don't actually think it matters. This is about the lead character in that film, who's played by Honor Swinton Byrne, picking up her life after the death of her lover in late 80s London and her troubles in trying to complete her film school graduation film. So she's also making her first steps in the professional business, helping out on music videos. You know, 80s London was full of those. And a pretentious musical being made by one of her former lover's old school friends, a diva director called Patrick Lemage, played by Richard Ayoade. Patrick. Hi. Hi. How are you? I am middling. How are you? Yeah, middling as well. <laughs> Good. How's your film? I'm not calling it that any longer. I was invited to leave the edit. So I could have made their film, but I wanted to make my film. So it was an easy decision. I'm sorry about that. I always wanted to be like Orson Welles. Lydia and I are back together. Good. Good, I'm pleased. I ground her down. She lost that battle. Although, she's still in the edit. Okay. So maybe she's winning the war. Julie, who's played by Honor, uh, she lives in that Pierre de Terre apartment still uh, that they shared. Uh, and she's still trying to work out what happened to Anthony and goes home to her country home, her posh parents' home, uh, played by Tilda Swinton, who's actually Honor's real-life mum. And uh, it's a really beautifully captured sort of essence of Englishness, really British in its country garden, really British in its linens and its tea sets and its pottery classes, but that done with a real European touch by Joanna Hogg. Uh, most unusually, this festival is screening part one, too, so you can catch up with it. Audiences here in France haven't had that pleasure. that It didn't come out in France, uh, which is really weird because Joanna's probably the most sort of French or European director that we have in Britain. Look, I thought it was just a delicate and exquisite follow-up as a sequel. I don't even call it a sequel because it's more like an aftermath. Either way, Souvenir Part 2 is an entirely memorable experience and I can't wait for you to see it too. Right, let's get to our guest now. Mark Cousins has two films in Cannes this year. His story of film, A New Generation, which adds to his already monumental doc series, The Story of Film, and catches us up with what the 21st century has been doing on screen. And Mark's also got The Storms of Jeremy Thomas here, a documentary about the great British producer of The Last Emperor and Crash and Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence, and so many more. But the story of film is hypnotic and it's great fun. And like this show, it reminds us of why we love cinema. Using clips from films, including Booksmart and Deadpool to Mad Max, Under the Skin, Son of Saul and Parasite to show us what technology and themes have been doing in cinema in this most inventive and yet most pressured of centuries for the art form so far. We've had Mark on Seen Any Good Films lately before, back in lockdown, when his documentary about the overlooked female filmmakers called Women Make Film came out. So it was a real joy to see him again in the sunshine and amid the noise of the Cannes Film Festival, which he had the honour of opening with his own ode to the movies. 
It's great, you know, I made lots, I made three films under lockdown, so when Cannes wanted two of them, I thought, fantastic. So w- when we say that cinema's not dead, we mean the cinema of Mark Cousins <laughs> is not dead. Well, I think COVID was a fertile time for some people, you know, either you just got through it, which was fine, but some of us had a time to think and reflect, and I had shot loads of material waiting to edit, and so, yeah, it, it was a good time to make films, and also, I think, to remember why we love films, yeah. you know, and I think that COVID, and more generally, taught us as human beings that we need to cooperate to work together the community and of course cinema has got that quality about it you know of a sort of a collective experience what was that universe the movie world like in the last generation what really mattered in filmmaking screen out all the talk of box office and oscars and tabloid gossip about stardom and what is left the medium its luminosity, its shots, cuts, honesty and beauty. Why did people keep wanting to kill cinema? They kept telling me during lockdown that cinema's dead, the streamers are doing it. Why are you so keen to jump on a bandwagon like that? I don't know, I think it's nostalgia. People have been saying that cinema's dead or dying for years, as you know, and through, like from the light, late 1920s onwards. I think people want to sort of call something out, to call out a moment and say this is different. And if you're also a cultural pessimist, then you're going to call out the moment as an end of something, you know. But, you know, I don't, it doesn't feel to me it's as if cinema is go- going to end. On the contrary, I haven't forgotten the ritual. Uh, cinema wasn't just something we did when we could. It was actually ritualistic quality. It, it, it afforded us deep pleasures, the pleasures of self-loss, obviously. You know, escapism, obviously. Encounter with another worldview, obviously. And these are all valuable. And pan- the pandemic didn't kill any of that stuff. If anything, it fueled it. It was just a situation thing, wasn't it? Just a so- sitting on your sofa rather than going. And mo- the movies came to us in lockdown rather than us going to them and and that's fine you know and I can understand people saying we're all a bit lazy and if you can get anything on your screen and you can eat pizza at the same time there's something in that but you know even oldies like me I want to get out you know I want to live intimately and domestically but also in in an epic way too you know not all the time the the spirit of Dionysus (laughs) or you know escapism is strong in all of us you know it really is you know, you've journeyed around and you journey around with this film and you've journeyed around to countless places and extraordinary locations where cinema is. I'm thinking of Africa and towns in Africa where a cinema is a, is a luxury. They do get their Netflix now. They are getting their streamers. Is, is, is that rather almost romantic view of the, the village cinema going to disappear? Uh, there's a cinema in Mali, I think, uh, and it's an outdoors, it's a village cinema outdoors, and it says, Le cinéma, c'est un cœur du village. The cinema is the heart of a village. And there's some truth in that. You know, cinema, you know, it can be a bingo hall or something, but people want, in UK, it's pubs, and people want somewhere to go, a kind of watering hole. And I think cinema is that. So that's not romantic. Again, that's just deep stuff and human beings and it's been there forever and I think that the reason why I'm an optimist is that it's actually a very good time for that kind of stuff you can set up a community cinema really cheaply and in the UK at the moment the last time I looked there are something like 25,000 community cinemas 25,000 
thousand, yeah. you know, invisible to, uh, to, to you know, the, the bigwigs. But they, so it's strong and powerful and connected to the what, cinema tissue. What happened to that cinema that you pulled across Scotland with Tilda? Yeah, well, that was uh, there's a mobile cinema in Scotland, and it's still going. But what we did was it is just, it's uh, it's part of a 37 ton truck, and what we did is we switched off the engine, and as you say, we pulled it across Scotland and we decorated it like a Christmas tree, well, except it was a bit rubbish the decoration. But nonetheless, it, we tried to make it. In the olden days, the circus used to come to town, yeah. and that was the kind of comparison. Let's sort of put a big effort and pull a cinema, uh, and again, that was. That was affirmative, it was playful, it was quite childlike thing to do, but it was also on a slightly more serious note, it was slightly to try and say that cinema is our religion. It's like a pilgrimage, to use a religious word, you know, and so it had that quality to it as well. Yeah, it was little stations of the cross in some yes, way. You yes, were kind of, yeah. But it's still going. I mean, not, not by, by the emotion that you... Yeah, and there are lots of... It, it was based on a French piece of technology, and there are lots of uh, cinémobile here in, in France where we are, and lots of countries have them. And it's interesting you mentioned Morocco and places, you know, nearly all... In Africa, the, nearly all the cinemas in Morocco died in and they're there, but they're used for other things. Yeah. But there's a movement to open them again. And look at what's happening in cinema going in China. China used to be underscreened, as they call it, and now it's going up and up and up. And So in many places in the world, cinema going is on the increase, and I'm not surprised. I wondered if, in all seriousness, with people trying to kill cinema, was it political in some way? Because the cinema makes us dream, it teaches us stuff that perhaps yeah. some governments would, would prefer you not to know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, it would be quite useful if our dreams were controlled or killed in some way. Well, you know, obviously from another perspective, the old classic lefty argument is that cinema is a sort of drug that it keeps people placid. That's what they said in the 1920s. Everybody goes and dreams of being Greta Garbo and then they go back to their drudgery job and we won't have a revolution so you could argue that either way and certainly if you think of some oppressive societies, some places where there are totalitarian regimes yes, they are really controlling what is seen in the cinema, look at Hong Kong for example, look at mainland China for example, so yes there is a very serious point there. It's going to be alright though, as you say you, 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 you make us remember why we love cinema, which is why we do this show to be honest, where, where was the fir- what was the first film you ever saw? first film I ever saw was called Herbie Rides Again. <laughs> it's about that time, flying Volkswagen Beetle. Um, yeah, and I, I guess, I think I was seven, I saw it in the cinema, and um, I just remember, the only thing I remember is the Volkswagen flying up into the air, and it didn't, even then I knew this was a gravity-defying thing, and I absolutely loved it. Where was it? It was in a cinema called the ABC in Belfast, and it was the Troubles in Belfast, so you know, it wasn't safe particularly. It was a tricky time. And so cinema, this added to the magic of cinema. It reified cinema, the fact that there was troubles outside. The streets weren't particularly safe. But you felt super safe when you went into a movie theatere. All right, Herbie, let's get going. Miss Harris, you're obviously an intelligent young woman. Why do you pretend to talk to this little car like that? People might wonder. Don't listen to him, Herbie. Just move it. I can understand Mrs. Steinmetz thinking of this car as a person. Old age has many fantasies. It only proves that she needs Mr. Hawk's help. Remember, Alonzo Hawk sent him. You and I know better, don't we? I would... You stubborn bucket of bolts. You always have to do everything your way. Miss Harris, let's stop kidding ourselves, shall we? This is just an ordinary little car. Like a million other ordinary, rather unattractive... (laughs) 
I don't think you should have said that. Herbie's very sensitive about his appearance. All right. All right, you've had your laugh. I think you ought to stop now. But you won't get Herbie to stop until you say you're sorry. Miss Harris, the thing that upsets me most about this whole thing is you trying to maintain the fiction about this... Oh! What was it, a film then that changed your life in terms of not one, maybe one you made, but yeah. maybe one also that that you saw something on the screen and had a sort of yeah. epiphanic moment that you thought, I'm going to do something about this. I've had loads of those okay. epiphanies. Um, when I was a kid, uh, not seeing on the big screen, but on TV, I remember seeing Orson Welles' Touch of Evil. I think I was about eight or something, so I didn't understand that it was about race and sex or anything like that. But I could see that it had a form it wasn't just a straight line, literally so at the beginning. And I've, I've never been good at words, but I've always had a sense of form, you know. In that moment, I remember thinking, what is the shape? I, I felt as if I was watching two films, the story film and the form film. And I've al- I always feel that ever since. And then, it, well, then when you did your film about Orson Welles, it was about his drawing, really, his yes. art. Yes, it was. It was about shape. And that's, you know, that's, you know, I'm a sort of engineer monkey. I love technical drawings and architectural designs and so there's always a bit of that in a film you know there is always a bit of engineering going on and this piece of paper to stuck on the wall here to to our left that your listeners obviously can't see but that is a sort of two meter long scribble of the outline of my new film and that's the shape this it looks like a straight line but these are the building blocks these big chunks of text where i've scribbled in multicolored pen this is the the original artifact is it that was on your office that's it yeah that's it that's the that's sort of like the script and then I just extend it but as you can see it's rough and ready it probably took me an hour and a half or two hours but we stuck to that shape almost entirely and often when you look at the the first design for a Frank Gehry building or an arch- it's like a scribble and so that first scribble of, of a film is very very important I think you said uh, in the awesome was he took a line for a walk yes, yes. you use that line again in this yes, film uh, but it's an idea for a walk yes. I think that's a Paul Clay line, actually, the great artist, and I thought that I, I love walking. You know, I absolutely love walking. And but if, the thing about a walk is that you can you can go off track really easily. So that idea of, of using uh, comparing a film to a walk is very valuable for me. What was the film that changed your life in terms of your professional career then? I used to I used to make um, documentaries for TV, um, and I made one about the Gulf War and various things. And then I made a film about Holocaust denial, and I hung out with neo Nazis, uh, and it was for Channel Four. And it was different to my previous work. It didn't use a TV aesthetic so much. Uh, we went semi underground with the neo Nazis, and um, it was the first time that I realised I could be a filmmaker. I had recently seen a film that's now become quite well known called uh, The Emperor's Naked Army Marches On by Kazuo Hara, a Japanese documentary which was about conflict and about danger and wasn't afraid of risk. So I made a film that wasn't afraid of risk, you know, taking neo-Nazis to Auschwitz-Birkenau. And that changed me. That gave me huge confidence as a filmmaker uh, to, to think big, and I think that any time I'm asked to give advice to film students, I just say, think big, you know, and so it emboldened me, that film. I mean, you obviously couldn't move for, for, for making this, this film, you know. I, I, how many films are in this film? Uh, there are 97 films in, in this film. <laughs> <laughs> it was the Russian doll. It just, was, just, just kept, it kept the gift that kept on giving. <laughs> what, you couldn't sort of travel for it or, yeah. or watch anything for inspiration for it, could you? Or, or, do, or do you just re-watch these films for inspiration? Or is there, is there an overarching shape that gave you some inspiration? 
Um, I knew that it should be a two-part film. I knew that part one should be about extending the language of movies and then part two should be about the more radical breaking of movie yeah. rules. Um, I had... I did some travelling for this. I went to New York and Madrid and a few other places, and then uh, the lockdown hit. But I had enough footage. I film every single day. I've done like 10 shots per day, for example, and I started working at 10 this morning. So that means that I have thousands of shots from around the world. So even even that COVID thing couldn't stop me (laughs) making stuff, you know? And so um, so that that was my way. It means that... It means that you've got this kind of big image bank in your head. And so when you're trying to think of a new film, I think, oh, I've got shots from this cinematic, or I've got shots from the Iranian desert, or I've got shots from the the Russian steppe or something. So it's really good, a very useful technique. Very good, 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 good clue. Have you ever fallen in love in the cinema? Yes, I remember the first time I saw Ashwarya Rai the great Indian actor on the big screen, I actually felt a kind of melt of some sort. It was a big close-up, and she's famous for her particularly uh, beautiful eyes. And there was a slight sagging inside, uh, which really, like, it's a sort of teenage thing in a way, but I remember feeling that very strongly. I met her here on the beach in Cannes, and those eyes, I, I mean, I, I could, I, I, it was wrong. I couldn't stop staring. It was too beautiful for this world, in a way. But yes, on the screen. Cinema's great at eyes, obviously. You know, it's a real eyes medium. You know, and so and when and then close-ups of eyes, of course, in cinema, because eyes are so obviously aqueous, vulnerable, um, uh, and um, easily wounded. You know, uh, but then you could say exactly the same of the person who's looking at the eyes, the film camera. Excuse me. आप कहना क्या चाहती क्या आप दूसरों की इज्जत करते हैं क्या आप दूसरों के दर्द को समझते हैं क्या आपने कभी अपनी पत्नी की भावनाओं को समझा है मुझे आपके घर के मामले में दखल नहीं देना चाहिए आपने राधा को अपने घर से किसी भी कारण निकाला हो मगर उसका इल्जाम मेरे सूरज पर क्यों लगा दिया हैव यू इन लव विद समवन लाइक ऑन अ डेट इन द सिनेमा नेवर कंसीडरिंग यू स्पेंड मोस्ट ऑफ योर लाइफ गोइंग टू मूवीज आई ऑलवेज I always go to movies on my own, mm-hmm. and usually like at two o'clock in the afternoon when there's no one there. Uh, yeah, so I I'd hardly see anybody in the pictures. Probably there's an old man in a raincoat yes. that you don't want to be falling <laughs> in love with. If you could go back in time to any set, and you have done this in your film, but any set to a film being made, I give you the power of time travel. Which set would you visit? Okay, I'm going to choose a film which maybe isn't too well known to to listeners, but I think for me it's one of the most important things. Films. Uh, we, we've all heard about Bollywood, but in India there was a filmmaker, Guru Dutt, and he was the, basically the Orson Welles of Indian cinema. He was poetic, uh, tragic figure, brilliantly inventive, and he made a film called Kagaz Kefool, which just so happens to be tattooed on my arm, and it's like the best Vincente Minnelli film ever made and it's a melodrama but existential epic of course huge because it was made in India like I can't remember nearly three hours and so I'm obsessed by it and what's it called in English? Uh, Paper Flowers and what, what, what year are we talking about? we're talking now I should know this probably 1953 right. or something like that oh, that would be amazing to be there black and white <laughs> you know it's like the 
classic Hollywood films. Uh, it's, it's like Lawrence of Arabia mixed with Casablanca, something like that. Mark Hazen's absolute joy to see 97 of your films and the storms of Jeremy Thomas as well. So that's sort of a 98 films yes. you've kind of been responsible for. We'll talk about Jeremy another time. Uh, lovely to see you. Thank Congratulations, you. Mark. Yeah, Mark Cousins, thank you very much indeed. The main interview here in Cannes is brought to you by Strike, who's been supporting this season all the time. The non-alcoholic beverage that's got all the spirit, none of the alcohol, now available in Cannes. That's why we're doing this, because I'm in Cannes, and so is Strike. It's in Cannes. When I said to its founder, Alex Carlton, I said, mate, I'm going to the Cannes Film Festival. You've got to sponsor the next season, just so that we can say, Strike is in Cannes. Because it is. You can get it. It's not rum and cola and it's not gin and tonic in cans for the summer. Why aren't you doing it already? Strike, thank you so much indeed. Cheers. Or salty, as they say down here. Okay, what else can I tell you? We're getting tested here just to get into the Palais. The UK vaccination certificates, they're not being recognised here. Thanks, Brexit. So we, we have to spit into a tube and await the results every 48 hours. So my first spit test was fine, a bit of saliva, uh, but my second test the other day, yesterday, the, the little vial was, was filled with a pinkish liquid. But when I handed it in, they said, this is no good, this is, this is blood, this is gum disease you've got. And I said, no, I think it's uh, simply rosé. <laughs> anyway, they didn't find that funny and they did a nose test on me instead. All negative, I'm very happy to say. But I can't honestly say this festival is COVID safe. I mean, we're all crammed in at screenings next to each other. There are crowds of people watching the red carpets, you know, crowds of public. And there's quite a lot of people to make your way through on the croisette. There are dinners. There are cocktail receptions on the beach with canapes being brought round. And people, you know, after a couple of glasses of rosé, they're getting pissed. (laughs) And there are pubs where we're all watching the footy and certainly not wearing masks. But, you know, it's the Cannes Film Festival. And the Wembley was the same the other night, right? Just without the rosé. So we'll see. I'm off to see some more movies. I've got a new Andrea Arnold, a new Sean Penn, a Paul Verhoeven, a Jacques Odiard. But you know what? I've just got time, because I've just come from seeing it, the new Francois Ozon, because it's not really a European film festival without a new Francois Ozon movie, is it? His latest is called Tout s'est bien passé, which has been translated as Everything Went Fine. And it stars the radiant Sophie Marceau, with whom I fell in love back at school in 1984's French class. You know, and I had a copy of Parry Match that we all had to then subscribe to, which we all completely did if it was going to have Sophie Marceau on the cover every week. It didn't, but the love for cinema and for Sophie Marceau was born. So what a joy to see her back on the big screen here in Cannes. She's great in it. Uh, she plays the daughter of a very strict father, played by André Dussolier, who's also great, who, recovering just about from a stroke, but lying in hospital with tubes, uh, doesn't want to do it anymore. And he tells his daughter, played by Sophie Marceau, that he wants her to help him end it all. Votre père risque de ne plus pouvoir parler, ni s'alimenter. Tu
This is a very clear-eyed case for assisted suicide in Switzerland, this film. And although it looks very soapy in an almost Almodovarian way, it's all very muted and utterly gripping and non-melodramatic. I have to say, I really liked it, as heavy as it may be. I like what Francois did with the genre and created a new genre that was very moving, but also full of love and difficulties and flights of fancy. I just, he's got such a lightness of touch, Francois Ozon, and it's quite unique and assured, and it makes you just want to spend time in the worlds of his films. Uh, we're spending time in so many worlds of films at Cannes, but Ozon's is just particular and a really nice way to have the early days of the festival. Okay. Great to be back with you. Thanks for being with me. I've got a lot more from Can coming on next week's episode two. In the meantime, you can catch me on Front Row on Radio 4. I've been filing for The Wrap uh, in the US uh, and, of course, for the new European paper. It's great to see that the winner of my greatest European films of all time, a list that was in the new European and currently is there too, has been getting a lot of mentions here because it's The Prophet by Jacques Audiard, who's got another film in competition, can't wait to see that, and whose breakout star, Taha Rahim, is on the jury this year with Spike Lee. It all comes together in Cannes, you see. And as if to prove that, let's go out with a bit of a Vanessa parody, as heard in early competition contender Israeli film Ahed's Knee. All right, Vanessa, take it away. A bientôt, mes amis. I'm